Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Allison Knight and Michael Minkoff, your hosts for this art history themed season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, Renew the Arts has given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Nice. Well, that was fun. We're going to let the cat out of the bag, the mailbag. This is the mailbag episode. For season three. Okay, so Shall we jump in. Yeah, let's just jump right well, in. For people who have never heard in mailbag, maybe what's a mailbag episode? Well, a mailbag episode is when people send us questions and we read them and we discuss them. And so, so our first one. Yep, we have a. Are we saying names or keeping anonymous? I'm saying names. Okay, great. I feel like they should be known. All right, Jonathan Goff, we know you. Yes, we do. We know you. Thank you for submitting a mailbag question. Jonathan Goff writes, Hi, Michael and Allison. Hi, Jonathan. I love, all caps, this season of the podcast. It's so helpful to get a bird's eye view of art history. Can you guys explain more of the ins and outs of Impressionism? As a director for the stage, I'm developing my personal philosophy in visual aesthetic, and I found that I really lean towards this period in art history. Just as an example, in a 2017 production of Steel Magnolias, I focused the premise of the show around the character Malin's memories of the past year. Using memory as a base offered a lot of flexibility to use color and lighting to highlight what ended up being the most important things about her surroundings from her perspective. The furniture was in bright colors if something important or poignant for Malin happened there, or it was flat white or cut out or transparent if it faded into the background in her mind. Lighting was vibrant in the background, and small spotlights were used to highlight her feelings of isolation at various points. Certain characters had overdone costumes, hair or makeup, depending on how Malin viewed them. This was the first time I really tried this concept on the stage, and the production ended up being very well received. As a director, I want to experiment with the best of visual techniques to push the boundaries of how stories are told in live theater. As a Christian artist, I want to use those techniques to challenge viewers' perspectives about the human condition and lead them to respond. Impressionism really inspires me because of how it connects the viewer to the subject's perspective, and I think it holds a lot of potential. Let me know what you guys think about these ideas, and if you can, delve into a little more detail on Impressionism. Yeah. Jonathan, I first just want to say that I think your concept within production is great. And love it. I think more artists should do this. And this is really kind of, in our episode 9, how we kind of wrapped up was to say, pick an era that you feel connected to and that you love, and apply that to your art form. Totally. Uh, I would love to see... Impressionism played out within for dancers and musicians and and really I mean I think that's the challenge how does impressionism apply to music that's a whole concept you know that's it, it wonderful is. and so I just want to say I love that you're doing this I think you actually really encapsulate a lot of impressionism within the production of Steel Magnolias um, specifically, you talk a lot about lighting and color, and I think that's such a huge part of Impressionism with the arbitrary colors and the transition of light within scenes. And you do—it sounds like you did a really wonderful job with that in the play or the production. Um, I will say I think a huge component of Impressionism is this idea of a fleeting moment, which you didn't necessarily hit on as much, not to say that that's not— wasn't included in your production, but I think a fleeting moment really is the main point of impressionism, whether that's the fleeting moment of an ordinary task or a fleeting moment of dining out or dancing or um, an interaction with another person. I think that was a huge part of the impressionist 
uh, ambition was to show the audience a fleeting moment um, and to see how a fleeting moment changes throughout the day. So you had artists sitting outside in plain air, painting the same landscape, which really was a fleeting moment. And you're and they're capturing how that fleeting moment changes as the day changes and as the sun sets and as the wind blows and as the temperature drops. And, and so I think if you can almost capture that maybe more so if you haven't um, in your work, I think that's a really, and you include the arbitrary color and the changing of light and the cutting of scenes as if there's a world happening outside of what the audience is seeing on stage. Um, I think that would really encapsulate the impressionist feel mm-hmm. within your work. I'm fascinated by this idea, though. Oh, I think it's when wonderful. When you sent the question, I was just like, that's that's great. That's that's art today, yeah, truly. That you're applying this historic art movement and and utilizing some of its values in order to inform your approach. I'm, I was just thinking, oh, man, what does impressionism look like in a song? What does impressionism right. look like in a film? What does impressionism look like in other areas? Totally. Because usually you think about painting, but the reality is that the that those ideas that you're talking about, the subjectivism, the personal perspective, the pheno- phenomenological perspective of those artworks – really could be applied to any particular area. Um, Not even just in the visual realm. What does Impressionism look like when it's in a song? I I don't actually really know, but that idea fascinates me. And I'm really thankful to you, Jonathan, for bringing that to our attention because I'm going to be thinking about that. I love it. Jonathan, you should invite us to your next production (laughs) because I would be fascinated to see. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that's so good. So... All right, let's uh, let's go on to the next question. So we have, we actually have two questions from EJ Olson. Uh, the first one is, what are your thoughts about Immersion Piss Christ by photographer Andre Serrano? Is it brilliant or is it blasphemous? I tend to lean towards the former, but I'd like to hear your discussion of the piece. I honestly think it's a hard question. Uh, there's so many opinions about this piece. My personal opinion, I think brilliant and blasphemous are too strong. I don't know that I would say it's brilliant. I think it's, um, I think it's inventive. I think it's clever. I also don't know that it's blasphemous. I would say it's probably irreverent. I think it's both and in many ways. For those who don't know what immersion piss Christ is, um, it's a photograph of a crucifix um, submerged in the artist's urine. Uh, And the only reason we know it's urine is because he includes piss in the title of his work. Uh, And it's a very controversial work of art. Uh, Serrano uh, produced this photograph in 1987. So it's, you know, has some years on it, but it's still a huge conversation within the art world. And, Funny enough, you know, his his intent was not to be, if we want to say blasphemous, that's, that was not his intent. Um, Serrano actually describes himself as a devout Catholic, um, and he, he wants to symbolize actually two things. He wants to first symbolize the weight of the crucifixion. Um, not only was the blood of Christ being poured out, but literally his entire body, including his urine bodily. and his bodily fluids mm. is a nice way to say it. Um And in addition, Serrano's commentary is that the crucifix now, um, the crucifix symbolizes, you know, a staggering reality uh, of the gospel. But yet it's become a commercialized commodity that you can buy anywhere for less than $10. You know, I mean, it's just— Didn't he buy that actual crucifix from a convenience store? Yes, yes. So, I mean, that was part of the point. Yeah, the was, point is that uh, I can go buy this anywhere. Yeah. Um, I didn't devalue Jesus. You did. Right. He's kind of talking about how we have turned this, the crucifixion into almost a cheap, mm-hmm. cheap joke. Um, and. But on the other hand, just this thing that has happened in modern art and contemporary art of needing to be controversial and offensive in order to get through to people is also a little bit tiresome. Mm, mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it's like, don't, 
you know this uh, this attitude of critique. It's great. I, I mean, there 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 does need to be some critique made of the cheapness of of what we've done to the value of Jesus. Yes. And yet, at the same time, on the other hand, can you do that positively? Mm-hmm. And maybe you might respond if you look at the photograph. It actually is a pretty photograph. I mean, it's it actually beautiful. is a beautiful photograph. And if you didn't know and it was urine, you wouldn't. You, yeah. you would think it's a beautiful photograph. <laughs> right. It has an interesting quality to it. And I, I liked looking at it. Um, but at the same time, I do want to see less critique in work. I do want to see less critique in work. I want to see more of a positive exposition. And I don't mean positive in terms of optimistic. I mean positive in terms of, okay, the world is ugly. Great. Tell me what you think beauty actually is. Mm. Tell me what you think is actually good. Don't just tell me how things are bad because that's easy enough to determine on my own. I want to know, give me a vision of beauty. Give me Mm. a vision of the good life. Yeah. So, and not a good life that's fake. I want a real one. Yeah. But still, you're supposed to be the visionary. Right. <laughs> tell me where. Tell me where I can well, find it. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great work of art. It's his voice about the current culture pertaining to Christianity. Yeah. And a rebuke, really, of the church. We have just completely cheapened the gospel in Christ, and we have made a commodity of something that's salvation to everyone. Right. And in another sense, it's irreverent. If God's looking at this work of art, I don't know that he's pleased by its reflection of his beauty or his glory. It's submerged. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, there is work. But in, he in, might be, he like, yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't There's know. prophetic work. It's like, you know, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Like, right. you're not looking at that and saying, is that a good expression right. of God's beauty right. and transcendence is like no you you're this is a naked dude but it's shameful and terrible but God does have those works in the prophetic areas of Sinai yes, totally and, and this does feel like a sign act in those terms um and a, a critical sign act, yeah a, a you know but I'll yeah. say this when I first saw the work of art I was completely offended you were. But then I understood what he was getting at, and I appreciated it. Uh, and I think that is just true for all of art. Yeah, um, that's true. So, Do you, you know, think that his intention was actually inherent in the work, or do you think that you needed to do research in order to find out where he was coming from in order to to appreciate it? I think based on the work, I would have assumed that he was not a Christian and— flying in the face of Christianity and what Christians have made of the crucifix. Hmm. Knowing his story, though, that he was a a Catholic and that this wasn't to be irreverent changes it. It is an interesting piece because you look at it and it it is beautiful, and yet it's made of plastic and piss. Right. And you look at that and you say, how could those things produce something beautiful? But the reality is when you look at the crucifixion, how could something so gory and so terrible and so unjust and so vile produce salvation? Mm -hmm. And the reality is it did. And it is singularly at the same moment both the most disgusting and vile thing that human beings have ever done. And beautiful. And the most glorious and beautiful Which, thing Which, if you ever interpret happened. his work in that way, yeah, it's in urine, yeah. vile and disgusting, right. and it's Christ on the cross, exactly. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, it's a hard question. It is a hard question. It's a great question, and I appreciate it. But it is a I great piece it. because it generates those kinds of discussions for those people who are willing to have them. Yes. So in those terms... Even if I would say, if I were this dude, I would not do that. I can still say kudos for generating an important and necessary discussion about these things. And, you know, I guess more power to you. Yeah. Thanks, EJ. Yeah. That's a good question. All right. So then EJ asks another question. In the episode Pop Goes the Easel, your mention of Black Panthers seemed dismissive of the structures of the Academy Awards and major film studios, and even 
a little dismissive of the film itself. First, I understand your point that the Academy Awards don't serve the function they once did in recognizing the films that are truly the best of the year with regard to vision, even if such films are unknown to most of the public. Black Panther's Best Picture nomination is evidence of this. Was it good? Sure. Was it anywhere close to being the best film of the year? Absolutely not. However, I think it's worth noting that the Oscars that Black Panther won were for production design, costume design, and original score. In these categories, I think that Black Panther was a worthy recipient of awards, and these categories have little to do with the overall vision and purpose of the film as a whole. These and other technical awards serve to recognize the best filmmaking craft at a technical level, so it would make sense that the films with big budgets are more likely to be recognized in these categories. This isn't an actual failure of the Academy. Furthermore, a film with a massive budget intended for mass entertainment may still be valuable art, just like a film with a smaller budget with artful intentions might not be of any value at all. This principle carries over to music as well. Though the divide between high and low art seems much more keenly felt in this medium, the dismissal of popular art or folk art just because of their popular or folk status is elitism, plain and simple. Popular art can have great meaning, and folk artists, that is, artists who are untrained and not masters of their craft, can merit as much attention and consideration as veterans of a particular discipline. The recent film Us, directed by Jordan Peele, is a perfect example of how a film can be just as entertaining as it can be metaphorically deep and thematically rich. Bob Dylan was one of the most important artists of his generation, despite being a marginal guitarist and an unskilled vocalist. It can be worthwhile to make a distinction between high and low art, but that distinction alone shouldn't turn us away from engaging with a piece. Thank you, EJ. So, uh, well, EJ mostly said it, but uh, I do think that what he, he brings up a, a really important point. And I didn't intend to be dismissive of Black Panther as such, as a film. Uh, I think that Black Panther was designed to be a money-making movie. And that's my point, that the Academy Awards are supposed to be an institution that elevates those kinds of products and projects and movies that are not in the public eye. Uh, and instead, it seems like they kind of capitulated to the Marvel machine in this one. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that Black Panther isn't a good movie. And I even said it might have serious themes. It does have serious themes. I've seen it a couple of times. I think it's a pretty good movie as far as movies go these days. I still think the Academy Awards have sort of lost a little bit of their uh, value as a gatekeeping institution, nonetheless. In terms of what EJ is saying, though, I do think it's important to understand that just because a piece of work is popular doesn't mean it's bad. Just because a piece of work is popular doesn't mean it's good. You actually have to have another metric for assessment. And I thought that the Academy Awards were supposed to be some of the people who were that metric for assessment, where we're not necessarily going to consider whether the movie is popular or not popular, we're just going to consider whether or not it is good. And you're right, EJ, the technical awards that it won, it, it, maybe it deserved to win those awards. Um, there might have been other uh, films that were made that were equally valuable. It may have been for political reasons that it won, honestly. I don't know. I have no idea. But yeah, is there an intersection between popular art and... Art with integrity. Definitely. There definitely is. I would say, I mean, you, you mentioned it. Bob Dylan, us. Sure. A movie can be entertaining. A music can be entertaining. Things can be entertaining and good and fun and engaging and massively popular. And still be good uh, in terms of art. For sure. And there is a lot of elitism concerning low art or popular art that I don't think is very valid. 
especially when it's not based on any kind of a, a, a rule or a metric or a rubric. But at the same time, on the other hand, just because something is popular doesn't mean that it's good or worthy of being listened to. And a lot of people listen to, watch, receive things merely because they're popular. And I think that the metric has to be different. Your assessment needs to be based on a different assessment, um, on a different idea. And um, I don't think most people, I don't think most that the average person is even thinking about whether or not the Marvel Cinematic Universe's latest cash grab should be watched, um, whether it's valuable, whether it's con- whether it should be worthy of their attention or of their money. They're just uh, going along and they enjoy it. And I don't think that's very good. <laughs> hmm. Honestly, I really don't. I don't think that's very good. I think that you should be very considerate of what you support and what you watch because that will constrain, direct, and move art where it's going to go next. If you support a particular movie, more movies like that are going to be made. If you don't support a particular movie, you're saying, I don't want movies like that to be made. And if the only reason that Marvel is making movies is to make money, I don't think that's very good. Now, does that mean that something that isn't made for the reason of just making money, does that mean that thing can't ever be popular? No, of course not. There are lots of popular things that were made for good reasons. In fact, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The soundtrack for that movie is lo-fi Appalachian folk. And nobody in the record industry thought it was going to be popular. It was the best-selling record of that year when it came out. And everybody was very surprised by that. And after it, there were a ton of other people that came along and started making Appalachian folk lo-fi records. You know, they were just trying to make a buck after it had proved popular. The reality is that record is authentic and is good and should be listened to. Nobody knew that it was going to be popular. The Beatles, they're, I think they're good. I think they had a lot of influence on music. They were popular. If their intention was to just make money, then it, then it really does undermine whether or not I can view their work as authentic or good. And so, you know, Salvador Dali, he's popular. A lot of people know his work. Does that mean that he was just you know, a mercenary. He was just money-grubbing. No, not necessarily. Not at all. He could have been an authentic artist. I think he probably was. So popularity is not necessarily, one way or the other, an indication that authentic art has been, hap- has been made or has not been made. Uh, but one way or the other, I think that you, you need a different metric. You, d- you need a different uh, standard for how you judge the art whether or not you consider it successful or unsuccessful shouldn't be on the basis of whether or not it's popular or unpopular. I think art history should be your metric. In what way, Allison? Art history is what's continued to influence the art of today. Art history has built off of art history, has built off of art, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think if you know your art history and you're aware of the art history that's come before and you're aware of the art that's happening now, I think that should be your metric. What art has influenced our culture for the positive and for the negative? What was done conventionally? What was done conceptually? Uh, I think that is a great metric of what is good art. Yeah. Um, Like how is it contributing? How is it contributing? Yeah. Because art history tells us what art has been contributing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest, I haven't actually seen Black Panther, so which is why I haven't said much right now. (laughs) Um, But... I I think there's probably a lot more to Black Panther than is received with just from the movie. Yeah. I think from a historical context, it it's offering a, it's a continued conversation about African American struggle. Um, 
that's that they started talking about in the 60s and 70s through the Black Panther Party newspaper. Mm-hmm. And now we have this movie. So I think the movie is far more than just an entertainment, probably. Well, definitely probably, to the director and to the people who worked on it. Yes. And in EJ but even society mentioned— doesn't probably is not aware of that no so that's yeah and and the studio doesn't care not really that's the thing is the studio wants to make money and that's what they're concerned with and if the movie makes money then they're happy and if it doesn't make money then they're not happy and if you will pay to see that movie they don't care what's in that movie at all so it's really important to keep that in mind, you know, when you start saying, oh, Disney's gone liberal. Now, D- Disney hasn't gone liberal. America's gone liberal. Like, <laughs> the reality is that we're watching those movies because that's the movies we want to see, and that's the movies we're paying for. I Consider think we should that. move on yeah, to the next question. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dakota Thacker asks. Well, we kind of answered this. What do you all think about Banksy? We already answered this. Episode nine. Episode nine. Go back to episode nine. We talk about Banksy. I will say, though, street. I would not classify street art under pop art. Okay. So what would I think you... it's its own entity within current art. Within current art. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's post-pop art. Yeah, post-pop art. Okay. And I guess we haven't really named this era yet because yeah. it's still going on. Unless we want to – unless you and I want Eclecticism. to – Eclecticism or a collage okay. movement. Woo. Pastiche. All right, so uh, Doug Gregory asks, what is the value of experimentation in music being released to the public? Some musicians are quite unique and their techniques are monumental, but they end up inspiring a generation of worse music rather than better. Some of the truly experimental jazz and grunge are good examples of deleterious music. First off, I don't know that I entirely agree with you that grunge and free jazz are deleterious music, but I do understand what you're saying. What is the value of experimental music or really just experimental art? People who are just playing really and and trying to figure things out and just messing around. They're not necessarily – they don't have a whole lot of intention in it. And then they release this to the public and that art has an impact on the direction of things and on the, you know, that that can be problematic. When I think about, I think a lot of this happened in, in Dada art and modernism and, uh, you know, Picasso and Pollock and all those guys. I mean, in a lot of ways, they were releasing their experiments to the public saying, mm-hmm. this, yeah. is, this is what we're trying to do. Absolutely. This is what we're messing with. And they didn't necessarily have a whole lot of an idea of why those things were being made or what they were making in them. And it is a question. They had a major impact. Picasso had a major impact. Pollock had a major impact. People looked at this art and said, oh, well, this is possible. Well, then I'm going to do something like this too. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to get on this bandwagon. And there were a lot of people who followed Picasso and who followed Pollock and who followed – uh, you know Coltrane and the rest of these guys in experimental jazz, and made some really not very good things, some derivative things, some some copies of that 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 had no intentionality and had very little usefulness. Especially when you think, in my opinion, Allison might disagree, that once you've done what Pollock did, it's done. It's done. Like, I don't really think that anybody else can do splatter painting and it be as revolutionary or as important as what Pollock did. I I just don't think you can. It's like, oh, well, you're doing what Pollock did. He already did that. You know, that's 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 old. And so Uh, but it's possible. It's possible. It's possible if you (laughs) if you do it in a way that incorporates, I think, another innovative concept. But you probably couldn't do it like he did it, exactly. Oh, well, no. You're not yeah. Pollock. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. It's just like the whole splatter paint thing. It's like these are experiments. These are his a- explorations. But they don't really – I don't really think that they carry over uh, to most other artists. No. And when other artists have tried to mimic him or copy him, it feels derivative and it feels unhelpful. Mm. And I guess what Doug is asking is 
is that even a good idea? If you're experimenting in those terms, should you just keep those things to yourself in order to avoid having this massive impact on the movement of art where everybody's like, oh, this is what's possible? Okay, well, this is splatter paint on canvas then, I guess, or just, you know, hit random notes and just, I guess that's just what it's going to be now. Right. Um, uh, yeah, sure. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like artists are always looking for new things to do. And in some ways, the value of exposing or, or releasing those experimentations is sometimes the experimentation is a exploration of process. And I, I would like to I would like to know oftentimes. I, I don't know. I mean, Allison, would you like to know about the process an artist goes through to produce the things they're producing? For sure. Yeah. But I'll say this. I think the value of experimentation being released to the public is that you learn what the public likes or wants. Hmm. They will either receive it or they will not. And that's, I think that's the lesson to learn what culture wants and what they like. Yeah. And then the curiosity, and then the curiosity is where, where did that become what they preferred? Mm -hmm. What influenced them to prefer that? So Um, it's almost like a a sonar for where the culture is. Yeah. I'm going to release this experimentation and you guys guys are going to tell me whether you like it or whether you don't like it. And I think that's the value. I'm going to be sounding the depths of what's going on in the culture. And that's risky. It is. Because by and large, you probably won't be received. No, you probably won't. Uh, But I think you get a feel for what's happening and Mm -hmm. what people are looking for and what they enjoy. And anybody who follows after that or who is influenced by that, it's their responsibility, honestly. I'm not going to say that, oh, you've made experimental jazz and so you're responsible for all the people who make experimental jazz after you. It's like, no, they could have listened to it and said, eh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something else. And they decided not to. So that's their deal. And I'm going to hold that to them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, honestly. Uh, A second question from Doug Gregory. Uh, what can modern Christianity learn from the moral desperation of post-Enlightenment philosophies, especially when it comes to art and music? Does music that is ugly or depressing rightly rebuke the church? Yeah, does music that is ugly or depressing rightly rebuke the church? I think that depends on the artist's intent. If your intention is to rebuke the church by creating something that shows the ugly and depressing state of moral desperation, if your intention is to communicate that to the church and then to offer a counter, which is the gospel of hope, then I think there's a right place for that. Yeah, agreed. And if you feel like the church is sugarcoating or glossing over the realities out there and you feel like they need to be confronted with— Oh, please do that. Then please, yeah, sure, go ahead. (laughs) Um, and I more encourage power to you. that. <laughs> yeah, more power to you. And I, I think that might be the value of post-Enlightenment philosophy or existentialism, that the church has to deal with that. Mm-hmm. The church is not allowed to skate over things and have this common ground between the collective human endeavor where it's like everybody agrees that morals are basically good and that things are basically meaningful and all this, et cetera. Uh, that you might have had in the classical or Baroque or Romantic era even. But past that, you don't have that Mm -hmm. scenario anymore. And I think that's actually a good thing that when you go out there into the world, you can say, yeah, the world is hopeless (laughs) and things are intrinsically meaningless. If there is a meaning, it's uh, it's, it's beyond us. And let me tell you about that meaning. And yes, I think that the church has lost an opportunity in uh, not considering those things. So, yeah. For sure. All right. We've got Jason Hunley asks, according to episode one of this season, a working knowledge of art history will help me as an artist. It will give me a context not only for style and where my current art fits into the historical canon or the arts, but it will also direct me by helping me to understand the role of art as it relates to modern philosophies. It would be helpful if you would give me a practical challenge that incorporates what we have learned from art history and suggest ways in which I can apply that knowledge to my current context. 
first off, I think we did that in episode nine yeah. to some extent. So uh, look, listen to episode nine. Uh, he continues. It seems to me that the predominant art for each time period did not combat the faulty philosophies of the day, but rather they just expressed mm-hmm. those. If we as Christians are to engage in the arts, we need to know up front that attacking modern-day philosophy will likely be received poorly in our current culture. However, it will provide an avenue for a conversation, which should be more of an end goal than marketable success. Right? I think often conversation is marketable success. Yeah, it is marketable. It's it's like the immersion piss Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. It's evoked this controversial conversation, and therefore it's been marketable. Yes. And yet, on the other side of that, I would recommend that most artists avoid that kind of extreme or offensive work. Unless you're given that work to do. And the reason I would say that is because you need to be devoted to humility. And I think the best way to combat, quote-unquote, the faulty philosophies of the day is not to directly antagonize them head on. You're an artist. You're a visionary. If you want to combat what is wrong with your culture, present to us what is good. Mm-hmm. Present to us what is right. Pr- create a vision that we can live in that is good and that is a positive expression of what you think things should be like. That doesn't mean you shouldn't critique. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be critical. I just don't think that should be the forefront of what people do. If you give a positive presentation of what you think is beautiful and what you think is good and what you think is right, people will ignore you. They will. They will ignore you. And that's why most people don't do this. Because if you do piss Christ, people will pay attention to you because you're offensive and you're, you know, like on the fringes and everyone's going to be like, oh, have you seen this? It's so terrible and inflammatory. I would say as an artist, don't do that. Don't even bother. Don't bother trying to rise above the crowds. Do what God has told you to do. Yeah, be faithful. Just be faithful. Even if no one ever notices. It doesn't matter. Just be faithful. It does not matter. Your labor is not in vain. No, it's not. If the Lord's called you to do it. We are committed to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And a sacrifice had to be the best that you had available to you. It had to be a spotless lamb. You spent years, maybe, raising up that lamb and caring for it. And it was very valuable. It was the best of your whole entire flock. And you slaughtered it, and you burned it on the altar. That's your work. Mm-hmm. That you do your very best, that you offer it to God, and that you present it to him as a sacrifice of praise. And if that means you don't get noticed, and that means you don't get a lot of notoriety or whatever, it, it actually doesn't matter. What really matters is that after you die, when you are raised and you're standing before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, he's able to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. That's what's actually important. So if God's given you something to do, do it to your very best, put it on the altar, light the fire. Light the fire. <laughs> and, and yeah, and God will deal with the consequences. So the last few questions we had came in after Allison and I had already recorded the first part of this episode that you've been listening to. And so, unfortunately, Allison is not here to weigh in on them. But we'll get back to Allison and my uh, episode after I answer these questions as best I can. Uh, The first one is from Emily Jones, and she asks... I've been really blessed by your podcast over the three seasons. It makes sense of where I'm at as an artist and art teacher. My questions are related to my art teaching role. I've taught art to many students from kindergarten to grade 12, 5 to 18 years. Currently, I'm teaching primary school students in a Christian school in Tasmania. It's a pretty middle-class suburban area, and fine arts is often considered a second-tiered subject. My colleagues are supportive, but don't quite get the centrality of art appreciation. Sometimes others refer to my subject as a good option for, quote, less academic students, end quote. 
I understand all the cerebral reasons for the importance of art in the curriculum, and I'm passionate about it, but I struggle to communicate it to others, partly an introverted personality thing. So I'm wondering if you can help me simplify my message, especially in light of the gospel. How can I get others to think of art as more than just mere messy craft time? For adults, why is art and art history relevant and even fundamental in their children's lives? For students, what do you think is the most important point to emphasize about the importance of art and art history? I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Kind regards, Emily Jones. That's a good question, and at Renew the Arts, we've struggled with this for a long time because it does seem like most people, when they think of the arts, they think about the arts as something that's superfluous, that has no utility, that might be pretty, but it'd be the first thing to go. I mean, they're cutting arts programs all over the place from schools um, because it just doesn't seem practical to focus on the arts. And there's some validity to that thinking, especially when you think about how the arts have been approached for the last 30 or 40 years um, as commodities and as basically entertainment. That does seem to indicate that the arts are less than necessary. But when it comes to adults having to do with their children, one of the things that we have emphasized is how influential the arts are on the moral formation and cultural formation of children now probably more than ever. Most children are more likely to have their values shaped by art that they consume, whether it be movies or music or books, than they are the education that they get otherwise. I mean, even think about yourself. After 12 years of primary education, how much of that information do you actually retain? Probably not a whole lot, but yet your values and your ideas have been shaped by something. Were they more shaped by your history teacher or by the movies and art that you consumed over that period of time? I would say that for most people, the arts that they have consumed have been much more lastingly impactful. Um, when it comes to students, I think the most important point to emphasize about the importance of art and art history is that by learning art and art history, they will be more conscious of the ways that they are being influenced by the arts, and they will also be more effective in the way they use artistic things in the influencing and in the impacting of the cultures around them. I hope that that somewhat helps. Um, but uh, it is a huge question. It's a good question, and it's one that you have to think about. And there are tons of factors that play into it. Um, one of the most important factors, I think, is the issue of art as commodity or entertainment or as luxury. There has to be an understanding, especially among Christians, that God used the arts to reveal his own character, which means that there's something that is able to be communicated in the arts that God sees as essential. So it's important to think about it in those terms. Uh, we have another question, this one from Tom Chapman, who has uh, actually asked us a question before, and uh, this is a good one. So Tom Chapman asks, Greetings, have truly enjoyed the Art History Podcast, learned tons, very well done. Question is a bit meandering and multi-part, so bear with me. If an aspect of Gnosticism involves possessing a secret knowledge in order to really know and really understand, do you think how you've been describing what good art is or is not, is that an aspect of Gnosticism? Going back to the discussion of the Church of the Apostles building last year, you said it couldn't be considered beautiful by its own merits, but you had to have some understanding of the history of the building of that type to know it isn't really beautiful. Regarding Picasso, you have to know that he could have painted any style in order to appreciate how he did paint. Regarding Pollock, you have to understand where he's coming from. Popular art can't be considered good art because too many people like it. So is the enjoyment of art reserved only for those who know art theory and history, who know the background of the artist? Can I not look at art from the Hudson River School and acknowledge its beauty and how it captures and shows God's creation? Can I say that it is more beautiful than a Pollock or of a Picasso, even if I understand their apples and oranges and what they're trying to communicate? If I look at Newman's red, yellow, and blue paintings, don't I need knowledge to gain some appreciation of it? So how is art appreciation not Gnostic and thus also reserved for those who possess it, the elite? I'm not intending for this question to sound as snarky and challenging as it may seem. God bless. Tom Chapman. 
Uh, it doesn't seem snarky or challenging, really. Um, there are a number of things that have to be addressed in the question beforehand. If you're not familiar with the uh, podcast up till now, we did an episode on church architecture and an episode on Gnosticism and uh, evangelical Gnosticism in the arts. And so you should go back and listen to those. And maybe my friend Rusty can put those links in the podcast description. But I'm going to assume that you have some knowledge of those things. And so I can address this question. Yes, it's definitely the case that art history and art historians can become very snobbish and very elitist about their inside-outside perspectives on what is or is not good art, and they can become very opinionated, and they can become very self-serving as any critic or any person who's in the know. I mean, Paul says it better than anybody, uh, knowledge puffs up and love edifies. And that's, I think, the central difference between Gnosticism and what we're trying to accomplish with art history. Um, The purpose of knowledge is to edify, but mere knowledge without love becomes self-serving. And so I think it is definitely objectively the case that there are people who know more about these things than others. Definitely. I mean, obviously. And it is definitely the case that the more you know and the better your taste is, the more discerning and the more choosy you're going to become. That's just the reality. There are people who become sommeliers and they know wine very, very well and they just won't drink cheap wine because it tastes really terrible to them. They've refined their taste. They have made their tastes sharper. Does that mean that they should look down on other people who don't have refined taste? No, but if they can serve other people without offending them, it would be helpful for them to raise the bar for everybody so that bad wine becomes a thing that's just not made anymore because bad wine is still bad. It actually is bad in an objective sense, not just a subjective sense. And I think that that is where um, this issue really becomes a rub. People are offended by the fact that somebody else might know more than they do, might be of a higher class than they are, or et cetera, et cetera. Any of the ways that we compare ourselves to one another, there's a fence lurking around the corner. And that's a real danger with becoming more knowledgeable concerning anything, whether it's art or theology or anything. People can be offended by the fact that you seem to know more than they do. And also... Like Paul says, knowledge puffs up. So knowing more becomes a temptation to lift yourself up and act like you're better than other people. Gaining knowledge is actually not the end goal of knowledge. Not It's not just about self-betterment or self-edification. Gaining knowledge is about learning how to serve other people better and how to raise the bar for the benefit of everyone. Most people will not allow you to do that, actually because most people are so offended by even the implication that there might be a deficiency in their taste that they're not willing to receive uh, more information. It's the issue of the complacency of fools. People that are foolish or that are naive love their simplicity. Um, People that are foolish hate knowledge. It's just the reality. That's the nature of things. Does that mean that the people who are trying to bring knowledge should insult them and say they're fools and simpletons or whatever? No, actually. They should strategize on how they can best lift up and serve. I mean, that's why when you look in Romans 12, generosity is a gift of the Holy Spirit because there is a genius in generosity That doesn't come naturally. If you have a lot and you're trying to give that to people who don't have a lot, there is always lurking around the corner the possibility that they will be offended by the implied difference that is made obvious or public or evident in the fact that you're giving them something they don't have. So as long as whether you know or don't know anything uh, about art or about wine or about uh, theology or about anything else, Uh, learning how to share the things you do know with those who don't know is a lifelong process of learning. And it takes wisdom and discernment and humility in order to make it work. And um, so, so yeah, that, that would be my answer for that. That doesn't cover all of it. 
you also address the issue of whether there's a subjective or objective quality um, to the arts, whether or not you could say that a Hudson River School painting is more beautiful than a Pollock or a Picasso. I mean, I think you could say that. I think you can say that. I think that's valid. That is true. Pollock and Picasso were not necessarily attempting to present beauty in their work. They were attempting to communicate something else. So um, when you listen to them on their terms, and that's the thing, is, is that takes humility to say, even though I don't understand this, I'm willing to investigate, I'm willing to humble myself and consider that these things are worthy of investigation. And once you do investigate further, because you are humble, because you are willing to submit yourself to the values of others that you don't necessarily hold, then you start to grow as a person and your whole outlook on the world expands and it increases empathy. It can actually generate love and inclusion rather than elitism and exclusivity. So it really just depends on how you use the knowledge and how you uh, approach other people. And that has more to do with interpersonal and spiritual issues than it does with art appreciation or objective information. Anyway, thank you for the question. It was, it was a good one, and I hope that was helpful. All right, and then I have uh, one more question from uh, Gregory Andrus, who asks, I have a question based on this past series, a question that has plagued me for years. Why is it that once we move beyond the Romantic period, Christian artists have virtually disappeared from the art conversations from the tastemakers and gatekeepers? Is that because Christian themes have been dismissed by the establishment, or is it because there has been a lack of Christian artists that are trying to say anything relevant in our postmodern culture? I don't think Christian themes have been dismissed by the establishment. Find the most quote-unquote secular, quote-unquote liberal, quote-unquote progressive, quote-unquote anti-Christian whatever uh, university in this whole entire country or in this whole entire world, you're going to find them uh, open to reading Flannery O'Connor or Dostoevsky um, any number of other Christian novelists or writers, you know, you're going to find them discussing artwork and paintings that have been painted by Christians. I don't think the Christian themes themselves have been dismissed. I don't even think the Christian themes have been dismissed by unbelieving artists. Uh, we mentioned this briefly with Old Man in the Sea. Ernest Hemingway was not a Christian, but he borrowed a lot of Christian symbolism in order to make a point that was antagonistic toward Christianity, but still no one's going to be able to deny how influential and important the Bible and Christian ideas have been in the world, and most people are still grappling with them, even if they're not believers. So I think that the answer to your question lies more with the second, that, um, that in a postmodern, post-romantic culture, uh, Christians have retreated from saying anything relevant in those areas to a great degree. Now, obviously not uh, to every degree, they're actually there are novelists and painters and movie makers and artists who continue to work for the church and in the church and outside of the church. And there are a number of those that we found even in recent years, and they've existed over the past hundred or so years. But certainly the taste-making institutions have not been Christian, generally speaking, since the Romantic era. And I don't think that the church has done a very good job of addressing uh, their position in culture as a minority position. There's been a lot of escapism, and actually you see this in Romanticism, the escapism of Romanticism, and we talked about that in that episode, and I think that the church was one of the major institutions who tried to escape from modern reality, and they were pushed out to a large extent. You, you see World War I and World War II, where is God? Where is God in that? What does God have to do with all of that suffering? And unless you're willing to address that suffering and address that, that struggle and that pain and that doubt and that existential crisis, you're not really going to have a voice. The church had a golden opportunity then, as the church has a golden opportunity now, to address those things, and yet the church has not addressed those things. And one of the major reasons for that, especially in the West, has been that we have a truncated view of the gospel, and we have a truncated view of history. We have, especially in the Protestant church, abandoned the arts as a way of expressing God's character. And 
we've become very propositional and very scientific. And that's something you can see happening in the early 19th century, mid-19th century into modernism. Uh, the mysterious aspects of Christianity had to be ironed out and you know, people rejected the supernatural, people resisted the spirit in those terms. And so you do see the art of even within the church losing so much of that power um, because of a lack of faith. And I think that a lack of faith and a lack of prophetic imagination is a major problem within the Protestant church that needs to be addressed. And it, I think that if there were an increase of faithfulness and imagination and creativity and uh, liberty for artists within the church and a place for them again in the church, we would see an increase of great works because there are people out there. They're just not currently being supported and encouraged to a great degree. So now we'll return to the episode that I recorded with Allison and finish it up. Thank you all for sending in your questions and your comments. This season was strange. It was. Far, far fewer questions than comments, which is great, actually, because I've, I, I, I've been really thankful for the contributions that you guys have all made um, to this conversation uh, around the arts and art history. And I also want to thank Allison a lot. She's made a lot of sacrifices driving down here and sitting and talking about these <laughs> things and contributing her um, her perspective on all of these things. And I really appreciate it a lot. And I hope that you all have benefited a lot uh, from it. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's been super fun. Hopefully I'll be on more episodes. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, we, we definitely want to have you on, especially as it involves these particular issues for sure. So. Well, thank you. All right. So it's been a pleasure. We're going to close this episode how we usually do the mailbag, which is that you are going to hear the theme song all the way through. So this is Eyes Closed Dance Party by Civilized Creature off of his record, Permission to Feel. And we hope that you enjoy listening to the whole thing, having listened to the beginning of it, I don't know, 10 times at this point. Anyway, so enjoy, and thank you. All righty. We did it! Was Woo! that recording? Okay, good.